It's June 11th, 2020. This is Rook. definitely deem our diaspora diverse, and it deserves displaying the definitive delineations of our distinctiveness. You got me? You see, there are people of Iranian descent of all types and strains and sizes and extractions and ethnicities and hyphenated identification. But what about a half and half situation? In fact, what about a guy born in Reno who might tell you he's the most famous half Persian comedian in the world? The very funny Kayvon joins us today, as does classical pianist extraordinaire Leila Ramazan. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 17 of Rook. Hope you are all keeping it together out there. It is Thursday, and thus our big Thursday show. The whole team is here. The whole uh, Rook on air? On air team. I guess we're sort of on air. Chetori, Kianjan, Hubi. Merci, Hub Hassam. Don't laugh. I'm, tro- I'm doing my best. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're a couple of days late, but I, Two days. I appreciate That's it. Yes. Uh, you are you are avec chapeau today. We oui, I you know what I discovered in quarantine? I discovered the joys the, the joys of a hat. The, the joys of a hat, yes. It's okay. it, I save so much time. I don't need to spend all that time putting on makeup and you know it's it I see so if you're wearing the baseball cap that means just, no makeup exactly it's great <laughs> what, it's what does wonderful. the hat have to do with makeup it just kind of hides the face so I don't need to <laughs> Kian, you know, I hate to break it to you but we can still see your face <laughs> you can see the bottom half you don't need makeup <laughs> the top half is what matters you are <laughs> I know, excellent I with or without makeup oh, and so that's sweet. by the way the voice of uh, Captain Reza how are you Captain Reza very well also sure. be hatted Yes, yes. Yeah. Today what is, is it? Hat day? Reasons. Today is chapeau day. <laughs> chapeau he, day. He's wearing it for his bad hair day. I'm wearing That's it true. for my bad face day. Chimmy Gims have Farsi for baseball cap. Uh, cool. I think it's cool all cool. Chi? Cola cap. Uh-huh. Cola cap? I'm making stuff up. Come on, really? Is that what? Cola cap, yeah. I'm thinking that Chimmy Gims baseball cap. Cola <laughs> cap. So we say. So let's just to explain the people who don't speak Farsi. So the 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 Farsi word for baseball cap is hat cap. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, that's Groovy Shia. Hi, hi, hi Shia. Hi, hi. So you're back to speaking with your mouth and instead of your fingers. I thought you were going to have the keyboard out from now uh, on. No, not today. It's very busy here, actually. And, yes, and we are freezing here. Yeah, right? well, there is air conditioning in our studio. Yeah, well, that's I like it. 
I like it. It keeps everybody on the toes. <laughs> so, okay, so your excuse for not playing the keyboard is that Reza is sitting there. Exactly. It Even was. though you could put the keyboard in between. It's really a terrible excuse. It oh, is, he can hold it for me. I can't play. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Just blame Captain Reza for everything. Next time, uh, Grubishaya, please have the keyboard ready, ready, as well as your cola cap. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite the show we have later on on this episode Layla Ramazan who is a uh, uh, classical piano player uh, extraordinaire she's from uh, she's living in Switzerland um, she has been involved in a project Keon to uh, over the course of four four albums to um, excavate to discover a hundred years of Iranian piano music wow. so Iranian piano composers um, are different from Western piano composers, right, Shaya? Yes, yes, and also uh, I remember that the reason that I don't have my keyboard <laughs> is because of Layla. No, really, because she's out of respect for her because she's, she's amazing. Cool. Yeah, 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 she's amazing. Now she is uh, one of the best pianists in the world, and uh, yeah. and uh, I'm very much looking forward to speaking to her. And before her, of course, uh, Kayvon is joining us in a few moments. Who you're a fan of, right? Honestly, he's he's such a joy to listen to, and um, you know, I, he might actually be my newest favorite comedian. Your newest, I, when well, that, you just recently him. discovered him? Uh, I, I've been following him on Instagram for a while. It's only recently that I've kind of been exposed to more of his, um, more of what he really does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's cute too. Let's let's be honest here. Okay. Well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, let's get let's get to the introduction of Kim. Um, thank you, Keon. We'll see you after Kayvon. Kayvon, Keon, Gion, Reza. You see, whole happy family. Reza and Reza. Okay. Uh, you know, stand-up comedy requires enormously unique talents and a keen sense of observation. Uh, and it's a vulnerable position to put oneself in in the beginnings, standing against a brick wall in an uncomfortably overlit spotlight, giving of yourself while the crowd judges you. So it's impressive when a guy who says he wondered where he fit in as a young person can become successful in such a demanding profession. My first guest today is an internationally recognized stand-up comedian, actor, and TV show host. His comedy has a versatile, relatable style. He engages his audience with high-energy performances and funny stories about a variety of mainstream topics. And he tailors his jokes to audiences of all ages and likes to poke fun at himself along the way and has a massive online following to show for it. Kayvon Moezi was born in Reno, Nevada, and is the self-described most famous half-Persian comedian in the world. Millions have seen Kayvon's appearances on MTV's Disaster Date, Last Comic Standing, Netflix, and his popular TEDx talk on growing up half-Persian, to name a few. He has also appeared in numerous movies, tours around the world, and last year, Kayvon released his first book called Once You Go Persian, A Survivor Guide from a Half. Right now, Kayvon Moezi joins me from Las Vegas today. Hello, sir. Oh, what a great intro. I can't follow that, so we should just end it right now. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be short, but very, uh, but, but promotional. <laughs> exactly. That's all you need to know, folks. Anything I say from here will just lose fans at this point. So. <laughs> but just thank you for having me. What go to the YouTube person? videos. Just go to the, go, go, just go straight go to the. Go directly there. That's right. Right. Um, listen, first and foremost, I mean, these are bizarre and, 
sad days, I would say, for the United States, if not the world. Uh, what's it like for you to be in Vegas right now in between the pandemic and the protests? I don't know if they're affecting Vegas as much, but what, how are you feeling? Well, you're right. It's a very weird time. And as you were reading all those great things, I remember that's when we were allowed to do stand-up comedy shows. <laughs> and uh, about you know mid-March, I started getting calls one by one. Your Noru's event in Houston is not going to happen. The Noru's party at Carnegie Mellon University. And they just one by one felt yeah. like dominoes in like a week's time. And uh, so that's when you realize it's kind of like, you realize how much how special comedy was because you know you start getting in the rut and like oh I got to fly to Pennsylvania oh geez got to get a rental car the next time I get a gig I'm gonna be so happy to get an Avis rental car and <laughs> pull up and beep beep and here I am so uh, this has been a good wake up call I mean I know the I know the world of music and I and I feel for a lot of musicians we've had some on this show in the last few weeks Hamed Nick Pay Ali Azimi talking about how. Uh, and classical musicians talking about they don't know what the path forward is when they can't play concerts. I, I, I was tending to think it's easier for comedians, at least at, at the high level. If you're Seinfeld, you release your next Netflix special, it doesn't matter whether it's covert or not, you're piling in the dough, right? It, yes. at, at your level, I would imagine touring is still an important part of this, right? Yes, uh, the live tour is really everything because if people like you they come up after the show they want to get your book please sign the t-shirt and you make friends with people all over the world and so i miss visiting them i miss going out to the restaurant after i do a joke where you you have you do a show and persians always want to take you to the persian restaurant <laughs> in their town after and after about the 10th city you go why don't we do vietnamese they're like or there's persian i go right but we could don't we could go to thai food you know there's a persian place next to the thai food you have to try that one and so it just keeps going and uh right, but now right. i miss all that i want kebab i want it all please uh, well, you know, you certainly know your, your Persian references. Tell me what being a halfy, a halfy <laughs> means to you. Well, being half Persian, what I tell women is the perfect amount of Persian. If you're not sure if you like Iranian men, start with me, then work your way to a full. <laughs> That's what I always tell people. But uh, no, my dad is from Iran, my mom, Iowa. And these two met, you know, around college in Reno, Nevada. And I was more in touch with the American side until the age of 22 years old. Mm. I get to Los Angeles and people start booking me for their Persian backyard party or their Persian Jewish bar mitzvah. And I realized I better get, I better start looking at my family a lot closer and finding if there's any material there to dig. And little did I know, the more I dug, I was like, I didn't, I never thought this was funny. My dad's name is Eraj. And he has a brother named Two Raj. But you know what? That is funny. If they would have had more boys, three Raj, four Raj, five Raj, every Raj. Right. <laughs> and, and as I'm doing these jokes, it's not just Iranians. I have Indians coming up going, I really like that joke about Iraj and Two Raj. That hit home for me. And I'm like, why? You're not even Persian. He goes, but my name is Raj. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so it's, it's I, I find that talking about having a Persian dad is a jumping off point where other people can say, you know, that reminds me of my Cuban uncle. Now let's talk. And it just is, it's a great uh, olive branch to bring people to you and 
get them to relate. Well, well two steps back, and, 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 and seriously, when you talk about you were more in touch with your American side, and, and I mean, part of that would be obvious because you're growing up in the States, so why wouldn't you be? But it's interesting because in your case, you are literally half Iranian, half American, and that's the way many of us feel in the diaspora. Like, we don't fit in on either continent, half Eastern and half Western. Were you suppressing your Persian side, or did you just not know about it? I just didn't really know about it. When I was in first grade, our teacher told us that we she could tell by our last names. It was kind of a lesson in culture. You can normally tell by someone's last name where their family might have originated from. So she said, like, uh, you know, Mr. Garcia, you are probably Latino. And <laughs> Wong, that's either Chinese or Korean of some sort. This and Moesi, terrible. you're Italian. This, this wouldn't pass the 2020 <laughs> test, I don't think, at this point. No. Right. Well, she was just trying to teach us that with a little last name, you can have an idea made. Right. She okay. Saying, All right. I, I know your dad's a Mexican. Okay. Yeah, she was like that. She's a gentle, beautiful first grade teacher. And, and she said, Moesi, you're most likely Italian. I go, woo, no wonder I like spaghetti so much. So... Uh, I, I was Italian. I really thought I was Italian until my mom was like, what do you, and it was like fifth grade when I'm like, so we're part Italian. And she's like, no, who told you that? And I'm like, Hey, my first grade teacher. And that was like, you know, a very important grade. What you learn in first grade sticks with you. Right. right. So I had to undo my Italian and jump onto a new ship and start learning about Iranian <laughs> stuff. It was very confusing. Well, I want to come back to, 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 to how you started to come to terms with uh, the Iranian-ness you didn't know about. But first of all, tell me what the cultural thermostat is and how you use it. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I joke that sometimes it's better to be Persian and sometimes regular white. That's what I call it. I always have Persians who go, what is regular white? We are white. I go, yeah, you're white. My mom is white. So that's the difference. Right. If, if there's a W or V there. But uh, and then I in my comedy, I just make jokes. When would you rather be white? When would you rather be Persian? I'm like, well, when you're negotiating for a car, turn the Persian up, get a good deal on the BMW. But when you get to the airport, turn the Persian off. You don't want to be Middle Eastern at that moment. You can, you know, just have fun with it. Well, this is why I wanted to ask you about that, because I know it's very funny in your act and in your book. But I'm sure that many people would look at you and say, this guy could pass as a handsome white dude. Why out yourself as Iranian and deal with the issues that might come from that? I mean, despite any pride we, we might take in it. Uh, do you, did you feel at some point like you didn't fit in? I mean, tell me about that disconnect that, that we can feel between what we portray outwardly and what we are really feeling. Well, when I started stand-up comedy, it was all about, well, regular white guys were just killing it. And I'm doing jokes about being Persian, half Persian. And they're like, that is not, people tried to guide me like, hey, get some mainstream jokes. This, there's no market for this. What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just writing about my life. Well, halfway through about 2009, 10, everything switched where it's like, no more regular white guys. What's your diversity? What's your ethnicity? What? And so I started doing that, and they're going, nah, you're not really that Persian. There's way more Persians and Muslims, and you're not brown, buddy. So I've always been on the outside of what's supposedly allowed, and I don't let it deter me. I just do the best jokes I can and post them on YouTube. And if you find me and you love them, that's fine. I don't care about ethnicity that much. I don't put that much weight into it. I just think if you find it really fun and interesting to hear some funny stories about my aunt or my uncle <laughs> or 
you know, my dad's life or mine, I think that's a great way to just reach people. Tell me about how you came to comedy. You talk about comedians always being your heroes from a young age. Why, why were comedians your heroes? I, I joke that I wanted to be in a boy band, but I didn't have three other friends. So <laughs> I was stuck with the microphone and I couldn't sing, so I had to do something. But the, the reality is, um, yeah, I loved, my mom would make us read all the time. During summertime, most kids get to play and do this. She would take us to the library and sign us up for like, you know, the book club. And you had to read two books a week to get little stars. And at the end, you got a pizza party or something. And I hated that growing up. But now I look back and go, that was awesome. And I would pick books that were funny because it was already hard enough to spend your summer inside reading. But uh, yeah, I would be, I'd get certain magazines and different books and I read about Johnny Carson and I really loved him. And I would see a lot of great, clever comedians. There was a show called Comic Relief Mm -hmm. where 20 comedians would come on TV and do their best five minutes to raise money for the homeless. That's why it's called comic relief. So these are like funny guys. Everyone's laughing and they're doing something for charity. I'm like, how do I get this job? Right. You know, this is what I want to do. And of course, there's no like job fair for comedian. You just have to show up to dingy bars and keep getting on stage and people throwing popcorn at you. And, you know, maybe the football game's on over your head and they're like, shut up. I'm trying to watch. But as you work through that, the clubs get nicer the venues get bigger, the crowds are more into you. And you need to go through that to get to a level where you earned a big crowd on a Friday night. So you're this kid who is enamored of, of comedy. You're born and you're living in Reno, Nevada, and not exactly a mecca of um, Fessenjun familiar denizens at the time, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And, and your dad no. marries this blonde white woman from Iowa. Um, I can't tell what's real or not in your comedy. Did, did he wear a cowboy hat? Was he really uh, doing this like kind of Western uh, American guy thing? Yeah, a lot of people ask about my comedy, and the the reality is I, I go based on truth because it's too hard <laughs> to invent all this stuff. Right. But the truth is funnier than fiction. My dad bought a pickup truck that looked like something you would see in the middle of Nebraska with a gun rack. Uh, he wore a cowboy hat when he'd go around. He loved having a buck knife on his hip. And he just looked like a darker redneck, <laughs> Persian redneck of some sort. So, and was he trying to fit in? Is that what, what, what was that about? Well, I think when he moved to America in the 70s and 80s, you wanted to be a part of the American dream and what you saw in movies. And he watched Westerns in Iran and thought, I'm going to be Clint Eastwood when I get there, Steve yeah. McQueen. And then uh, now... It's different than what I'm used to now. It's when you move to that country, teach them about who you are, and don't you dare learn their culture. Keep your own. Uh, not for everyone. I'm just seeing a lot of that, and it's kind of different than what I was used to. So I'd say, what well, maybe there's a happy medium in there somewhere. There's something else too, man. Which is, I, I'm older than you. As somebody who was a kid in the '80s, uh, after the revolution happened and the hostage crisis, it, it was really hard to be an Iranian in in the West. And so right. your dad was probably protecting the family on some level or just kind of going, you know, I, I, I don't want to have to deal with that, you know. Um, That's true as well. You do talk about how your dad was a prototypical Persian dad in that he would not not let on if he didn't know something. <laughs> in fact, oh, like yeah. he knows everything, right? The dad, <laughs> A wealth of wisdom. That's right. Even if he doesn't know what he's talking about. 
But he he couldn't hide his Persian side from you. One of my favorite parts of your book is you talk about your your dad takes you're enamored of wrestling, and you go to this uh, the WWF it was called at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what do you call it? I guess a a, a show wrestling or, match. Yeah, a wrestling yeah, match wrestling at, at, in Reno at this arena, and your dad ends up cheering for the Iron Sheik in, in the arena of wrestling fans who are booing him. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me yeah. about that. My that dad experience. loved the Iron Sheik because any Iran, Iron Sheik was an actual wrestling star and he'd known about him. And then Iron Sheik, uh, Khosrow Vaziri, if I'm not mistaken, was his real name, but Iron Sheik. And he moved to help train Olympians in America. So my dad was like a few years behind that going, this is one of our own that's made it. And then when he became the lead bad guy for WWF wrestling, <laughs> my dad's like, he's still an Iranian treasure. I'm cheering for him. Wow. So it was just funny because the average wrestling fan has been trained that that's the bad guy. And nobody in the, the whole area was excited to see the Iron Sheik except for my father. He's like, yeah, he's here. <laughs> it's a great story. Uh, so you finally decide, or you, you decide, and correctly, as uh, if we look back from this standpoint now, that you want to become a comedian. You talk about the fact that when you finally come to this decision, it's exactly the week your brother gets accepted into USC dental school, and, uh, and you also yeah. did the LSAT and got accepted into law school right around when you decide to go to comedy. So, so uh, you could oh, have really yeah. satisfied the Persian <laughs> side of you by doing that. But how did your choice of comedy go down with your parents at that point that was really hard and actually now with coronavirus and being locked down my dad reminded me that maybe it's not too late and i should have gone to law school i don't need this right now stop (laughs) but uh yeah that was hard because technically a foreign immigrant father would have had a law student and a dental student at the same time that is just you know but i've kept him alive to give him something to worry about this comedy path which is so weird and it's hard to explain the job and um, hey dad, I got hired by Google corporate. I'm doing a 20 minute show for them next Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. Like to him, that's nothing. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. but he, the, but, he uh, yeah. must appreciate that you're doing well now. Right. Like I'm sure he, does, did he, does he come to your gigs and stuff? Well, I try not to have family there too much because a lot of it is me acting like I'm so cool on stage and you don't want anyone that knew you before you were a comedian going, eh, this guy, you know, he got dumped by his first three girlfriends and he's not some, you know, so, uh, but yeah, he comes about once a year to a show and my dad used to work at the casinos in Las Vegas and people would come up to gamble and if he saw they were Iranian or some sort of speaking Persian for some reason, he would go, Hey, have you heard of my son? And he would hand them a business card. <laughs> and 10 years later, by the end of his career, he'd be like, have you heard of my son? He's a comedian. And then people would start saying my name to him before he even got to the wow. business card. So that's how he knew I was somehow getting a little more internationally recognized. Right, right. You, you, you've never learned to speak Farsi. Do you, do you, I mean, I know you know some words, but do you think you're funnier because you don't speak Farsi to Iranians? Oh, it's hard. I get lectured at every show. I'm sure. I need to learn more Farsi and how dare you. Some people are joking and some are very angry. And uh, it was funny. One Iranian woman said, if you were to date Persian woman, this is what you need to do. You will learn Farsi. So I go, come on. That's not how you learn a language. Yes, you will learn Farsi. Uh, Well, I did date a Persian girl for two years and I learned one word. 
Nakon. So don't talk. No, no, thank you. Maybe next time. So that is, I'm an expert at Nakon. Right. right. And your dad, your dad helped you with some Farsi words like the name of your dog is. Yeah. The name of my dog growing up was Sag. And we had a bird named Abi because the bird was blue. And our other bird was Zard. And that was how he was going to do it. And I said, well, unless you're building an ark, we're not going to get through enough words to make this functional. Oh, you know, when you talk about when you talk about some people getting uh, mad at you for not, I mean, did they really get mad at you for not speaking Farsi? Or are you kidding? Yes, I've been I've been cornered. See, the problem with being a comedian is if you do meet and greets after the show, you meet everybody. Right. And 99% of people are amazing and nice. And oh, my gosh, they give you something. But you don't remember that. You remember the four or five times in your life that it's more funny to remember those anyway. And the lady cornered me and goes. This was our Nowruz event, and you spoke English the whole time. Right. I go, right, but I was only on stage for 20 minutes, and you had three hours of Persian flute and Persian <laughs> tambourine and Persian food. and You have made disrespect of our whole event. And the, the girl's going, Mom, I liked it. Come, no, I want to tell him. And she was going off. like She, she had thought of this and was ready to unload on me just for <laughs> – and in my comedy, I go – I apologize for not speaking Farsi. My dad never taught me. Please email him. And I, I make jokes like that, but that was not enough for her. She needed to let me know. See, I was going to ask you <laughs> from a, a, another standpoint about how Iranians might, uh, in terms of the actual comedy itself, like in your act, in, in your book, there there isn't a lot that's sacred, as it should be, I mean, for a comedian. And and you're, for example, you're pretty hard on what you call Persian princesses, you know? And all, <laughs> although that's all very funny, have you heard from Iranians who are somehow offended by this? I mean, I mean, besides requisite trolls, do you ever have someone saying, how dare you? You're not even 100% Persian. You shouldn't be, you know, you should, you should celebrate our positive side or something. Yes. Any criticism you can think of, I've heard it twice at least. Um, Iranians don't really like to poke fun at themselves uh, a lot of times. They have different sensibility levels. And especially because I, they look at me Let's say an Iranian comes to my show halfway through and sits down. Then they hear me start going on about Persians. They haven't got the beginning where I say, hey, my dad's this, my mom's that. that." So they're jumping in the middle of a movie and they've been trained like, like that guy with blue eyes must be racist. He just made two jokes in a row about Iranians. And then he, he, he talked about Persian princesses. I'll go up and stop him so that this doesn't happen again. <laughs> and that's the problem with people getting offended too quickly. And I try to bring that up often in my show. How do you deal with it when you get somebody, a nasty comment on social media or somebody heckling? Uh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you deal? Well, they be, because ahead. I'm American, I typically take the Trump path because we get criticized so many times that I could say thank you for your advice and I will work on that. But I'm more like, if you don't like that joke, you wait two minutes. There will be another one that's about a totally different topic. Right. And if they come back again, then I, I, you know, but I try to always match them whatever level they're at. I'm not proud of it. I should probably back off and just say, okay, thanks, or delete. But I do engage a little because we, uh, in comedy, there's a thing called the heckler. The heckler <laughs> is right when you're about to do your big punchline, a guy goes, you suck. <laughs> right. And now if you just finish your punchline, the audience isn't going to even laugh anymore. You have to address the heckler. And say, you know, you can say whatever you want. You can say, oh, my uncle's in the front row. He wishes I went to law school. That's a, 
a happy way to deal with a heckler. You could say, this is the last time I bring my father to my show and sit him in the front row. Dad, the nurse is going to come take you out soon in the wheelchair, whatever. Or you can go really nasty. Because we're Persian, we don't typically go real nasty. We make it fun. You know, one one, one woman said, you know, this guy is uh, the worst comedian I've ever seen. I'm like, you need to get out more. There's so many worse comedians than me. <laughs> Just little stuff like sure, that. Sure. I don't let it go, but I don't typically get too hard on them see my theory is i'll bet when you're doing a cave on gig like when you're headlining some big theater and everybody's coming to see you you can do no wrong i mean someone right. like, like maz maz Giovanni at this point you know nobody's gonna heckle maz because he's he's successful we are proud you know we, we sort of yeah. everybody goes and <laughs> thinks everything he says is funny but even he at the comedy store on a tuesday night you know with 20 people 18 of which don't know him might not be yes. as funny right so that that's probably part of what it probably depends on the audience i'm assuming yes that is a huge part and the other huge part is when you're charging 70 dollars a ticket the audience goes we're going to laugh no matter what <laughs> they are ready <laughs> to do it and at my show is we got a group on let's tell him he sucks you know so you have to understand what level you're at and uh, i want to raise my ticket prices so everyone is more respectful <laughs> when you talk about being the blue-eyed guy, you, you've done a bunch of touring and you've toured with Moz. And I know you went, for example, to Dubai um, and mm -hmm. you played a big sold-out theater there. Do they react to you differently because you're white-looking <laughs> than, uh, than, <laughs> than, than the reaction you might get in, in Canada or the States? They were pretty cool there. The thing with Dubai was you have to send your jokes to the magistrate before you arrive. And then they kind of criticize whether the jokes are good or not <laughs> before you get there. I've never had an experience like that where they go, please send us your script. I'm like, Hey, comedians don't have a script. We have a bottle of beer in one hand and we're teasing the crowd with, you know, the mic in the other. Uh, so I had to like pencil out what I was probably going to do and send it. And they said, well, it hasn't broken any of our laws. These are the jokes. I go, yeah. Well, we're not sure how funny this is, but good luck to you. <laughs> I was like, thanks a lot, man. But uh, yeah, they were very cool. We did two shows out there. You know, you mentioned Noruz earlier and, and the lady yelling at you for uh, not speaking Farsi. You, you've talked a lot about Noruz in your act. You did a Noruz tour. You did a Noruz film. You discuss it in your book. The amazing part for me is that this, this is the, the, you didn't even know that this was the most important date on the Persian calendar when you were growing up. I mean, your, I your, your parents did name you Kayvon. Your dad clear, clearly could not hide his, his Iranian-ness at home. Why do you think he didn't tell you about Noruz? <laughs> um, that was not a holiday we ever talked about. I know when I went to my aunt's house every few months or years, she'd have some weird dish on the middle, but it wasn't a big layout, like a table where I'm like, what is all this? It was a small little, like a do it yourself, no ruse kit, little grass, little coins, little garlic. I'm like, yeah, she probably just left this stuff out from cooking. So when <laughs> I got to LA, you know, someone hired me for a big Noruz event. I go, well, I don't know what that is, but is it paying? I'll be there. <laughs> and I, I, they had to explain to me what was this table about three times. And each Persian had a little bit of a different answer, what belonged on there and what didn't. And I said, this is so confusing that I'm actually interested. And instead of just learning something, I'm like, why don't I bring a viewer, bring a cameraman, and we I'll let the viewer learn this holiday with me. The, there's no better way to share it than watching a kid go through the journey at the same time. And that became an award-winning documentary called Noruz, yes. Lost and Found. <laughs> Kevin, how often do you get uh, asked to make Zeresh Polo? 
Oh, now. oh that is a lot because one of my most famous jokes is how I made Zeresh polo for a TV show and I burned it and I messed up. But by the end, I got it perfectly with the tadig <laughs> that was brown and crispy rice there. And uh, so now as a joke or even seriously, a lot of people will say, hey, you know, girls, you say, hey, we should go out sometime. Will you make me Zeresh polo? I go, hey, come on. This is a first. That's like, you know, there's things a man cannot ask for on a first date. <laughs> right, right. Ladies, you should not. That's you got to work dates. your way you up to the Zeresh polo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going to make you wait. <laughs> we can work out a negotiation. I mean, are you a one-trick pony or are there other Persian dishes you can now wow people with? <laughs> uh, one-trick pony. <laughs> I, I can make lots of different dishes, but Persian food? Uh, I, I leave that to the experts. Uh, I know I can't keep you here for, forever. I, I've just got a couple more questions. You you end your book with this ode to comedy and laughter, and, and you say you really believe it can help the world. Laughing can. Tell me about that, because I assume that's part of the reason you went into this. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, comedy is underrated, if done right. I'm seeing a lot of comedy now. It's called social justice comedy, or what they call woke comedy right. i think you sh you want to stay away from that that's not so much comedy you notice there's a lot less laughs but it's a lot of political points being made right. and i come from a different generation where you didn't know if, which way johnny carson voted when he got behind now they want to tell you out loud you know you, you just knew johnny carson would make fun of uh let's say bill clinton and then he would make fun of George Bush, you know, or something like that in the same breath. And you go, wow, he just punched both in the eye. That's cool. So I, I try to do that a lot in my comedy where it's balanced. I might start a joke making fun of, let's just say, like a gay guy. But then I end it where the gay guy actually made fun of who you thought was being rude in the beginning of the joke. So when people get offended too quickly, they are missing the whole scope of things. There's, a th there's one other thing that really actually quite moved me in your book. And you talk about how because of this duality in you, the half and half, you can kind of fit in with white folk and with Iranians. So you're you're privy to hearing uh, conversations with both sides. You'll, you'll be with a bunch of uh, American guys talking about Iranians and not knowing that you're Iranian or or at one of those Persian restaurants after the gig and they're talking about Americans. or uh, And you overhear a lot. How do you how do you think Americans or Iranians misunderstand each other the most? Yeah, that's where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, I try to bring everyone kind of back to the middle because uh, it's very easy to be like, oh, all Americans are racist and they hate this. Uh, no, all Iranians are, you know, uh, they, it, none of this whole all. It doesn't make sense. I have a joke in the book where I say, if you ask 10 Iranians their opinion, you get 14 different answers. <laughs> so it's, they, they don't even agree with themselves or their own brother. You see the arguments on Facebook between two family members. So no one is, I think culture is a fun thing to joke and talk about. But if you're like, uh, oh, that guy votes like this, I'm sure, because he's black. You know, you don't know that. And I think comedy is a cool way to uncover that we have a lot more in common than we do that divides us. 
It's great to talk to you, man. I, I, I we started the 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 interview with a, a promotional message. You're the introduction to you. It actually was just a legitimate introduction. I I wasn't trying to promote you. <laughs> you. You have done impressive stuff. But but you talk about how it's not easy to tour right now. So if people want to find you, or, uh, of the bevy of things that you've got going on online, where where should we send people? What do you what do you want to go ahead promote? you oh, got you on yeah, the show. Yeah. Tell us. Yes. All right. This is how I make my money. Get ready, folks. No, I. Uh, because of all the social media platforms, we have to be part of all of them. So I'm on Instagram. You just Google or search it. You'll find my Instagram, my Facebook, my Twitter, my Telegram, mm-hmm. my website, my Tinder account. I'm on Craigslist and eBay. I am everywhere. So find whichever one works for you. And if uh, I want to give away 20 free tickets to the first 20 listeners that message me and mention your name because we want to spread the love, spread the laughter, and give some freebies. But here's the catch. There are no shows right now. <laughs> I was going to so say tickets might... to what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you might have to. But what I've been doing is Zoom comedy shows. Okay. So if they message me and they go, hey, I have a cocktail hour. I'm sick of looking at my aunt's forehead. Can you come on and just tell jokes? I've done that for like 20 people. And then 20 companies have hired me to do a Zoom or a live private wow. show for their small staff, and I'll do that this time of year. All right, that sounds great. We'll, we'll, we'll. Yeah. Uh, th- th- there it goes, folks. Uh, uh, info at rookmedia.com. Send us a note, and and we'll get you those uh, uh, the first twenty, I guess, who who send it. By the way, you said Telegram. Does that mean people watch you in Iran? They do. I have a lot of fans in Iran, and they message me through the Telegram, or some of them they have an like a. I'm not really. Uh, is it called the IPN? That yeah, lets some, them yeah. use a different. They have some sort of way where they're like illegally writing me. It feels very VPN, underground. Right, right, right. VPN, VPN. Thank you. And uh, they've been doing this thing and writing me, and I'm getting messages. Sometimes I'll repost them. I block out names, and so I don't want to get anybody killed. But I go, hey, I just got a fan from Iran who messaged me, and they they do the jokes, they reenact them, and I, I hope one day to perform there too. Um, thanks so much for doing this, brother. And. Uh, we hope to see you on tour sooner rather than later post COVID. Uh, yes, stay please. safe and sane in the meantime. And, uh, uh, we'll promote your social media sites and, and, uh, people should go out and get this book as well. Thank you for doing this. You as well. Have a good one. And thank you for including me and everybody have a safe time out there and we'll get through this year. Don't worry about it. Thanks buddy. Kayvon Moezi. Uh, comedian, filmmaker, author of the book, Once You Go Persian, a survivor guide from a half Kayvon joined us from Las Vegas today. All right, Kayvon Moezi. Keon is walking back in the studio. How about that? You already know how I feel about Kayvon. You like Kayvon. He <laughs> was do. funny. He's he was good. I think everybody agrees. Uh, well, do we all agree? I think uh, we, you guys were laughing in there. I was watching you while we did the interview. Yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah, he's like charming. Him. You'll just say quite funny, huh, Captain Reza? <laughs> yeah. He doesn't think he's <laughs> as cute as I do. Right. But you can say that. I think that. he's cute. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, he also, so he's giving away 20 tickets for his Zoom, I guess, for a Zoom show. 
Can I apply for that? Yes. <laughs> Didn't you already send in your e- I made in- it very clear. You, you are welcome to. <laughs> info at rookmedia.com. Uh, info at rookmedia. I think Sarah in the other room wanted to uh, also get in on that, those tickets. It'll just be the, It'll it's basically the, the Rook. <laughs> Anybody who's volunteering or working on Rook, it's going to be watching a cave, the cave on I think most, most women will try to. Well, you're really like stuck that. on I, this. I you really, so, yeah. you, you really think you're very attracted to him. I, not just me. I'm, well, there's yes, no women Reza here. Is attracted I, to I'm him looking at Reza like, right, Reza? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a, he's, he's he's a lovely man. He is. Yes. Um, okay, so info at rookmedia.com is where to uh, get in touch with us. Uh, if you want to get tickets right away, uh, get tickets to, to see Cave on, uh, on on Zoom. <laughs> so what is he? He allows you into the Zoom, I guess. That's the way. You see, I'm super curious about this. Now, I might get a ticket myself. Well, Reza, if you, <laughs> if you email info at rookmedia.com. <laughs> Where was it again? <laughs> <laughs> Write it down. It's very info important. Info at rookmedia.com. That's yeah, yeah. right. But, but, but you see, uh, one of the appeals of stand-up comedy is the laughter, right, right, from the audience. And I suppose for the sake of not being heckled, uh, like, through Zoom, he probably is going to, like, and here's another thing because when you do stand up on stage you got a microphone that you speak mm-hmm. to right yeah. and you're louder than anybody else so even if somebody shouts out at you you mm-hmm. barely he hear can them. mute everybody but that's what I mean and oh I see then you won't hear them laughing you mute the laughter exactly right, so right, I don't right. know how that's it's like go. those um, shows right now the the late night if you're in North America and mm-hmm. you see that yeah, like yeah. Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert uh, without the crowd that's right they're just that's kind right. of talking Trevor Noah and, and you, <laughs> it's you sort of go oh that's yeah. funny but there's nobody it's, mm-hmm. It is a strange. It is true. It's it is awkward. They, they could put the though. old. Uh, they could put the old laugh track on it. That's but Bill Maher does it's that. Even weirder. Yeah. Bill Maher is still like he, goes the, he uses the laugh, the laugh yeah. track. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Groovy Shia, yes. did you enjoy the the cave on interview? Yes, yes, I laughed a lot, and I can imagine that I'm sitting in a room and seeing him, you know, performing on Zoom, and I could laugh really, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yes. true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Shai is waiting for Leila Ramazan, let's face it. <laughs> She's a piano hero. And we're going to get to her in just a few moments. Leila Ramazan will be joining us from uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, but first, Letters with Keon. So last week on episode 15, we had comedian Tehran Von Qasri. He joined us from L.A. Uh, He spoke very passionately about the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as his experience of growing up as a half African-American, half Iranian person in America. Yes. Um, So it was a really open interview that shined a new light on the racial issues of today from a unique, really, truly unique perspective of someone being both African-American and Iranian. So a lot of people wrote to us about that interview. It's um, a, it was obviously very timely, and yeah. um, it, it has become one of our most popular episodes For sure. already. Even though uh, back to the beginning of the show, um, so and I guess that's partly because of its currency. And partly because people love Tehran, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, he shines a new light on that movement from an Iranian perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. It kind yeah. of gauges us. So uh, we had Sheila Iranian Khalaj on Facebook. She wrote, so glad you interviewed Tehran. I follow him on Twitter and he is great at educating people on the current situation. Thank uh, you. Who was that? That was Sheila Iranian Khalaj. Thank you, Sheila. 
as well we had Faye Arjmond on Facebook she wrote absolutely agree with him um, we have Bahare Panahi and she agreed with uh, uh, with Tehran Tehran yeah how do you know what do you mean how well, do I well if she say absolutely agree with him maybe she means well, did Shia you, or me oh that's true I, I think that's the true. The majority of that interview was kind of Tehran based, so I'd, I'd go with that. Yeah, that's probably what you meant. Thank you, Faye. Yeah, so uh, as well, we had Bahare Panahi. Uh, she said, Tehran, you are such a sweet guy. Thank you, everybody. I really enjoyed this with several emojis. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Lisa Christina, she wrote, I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. I love the philosophy and multi dimensional aspects of Tehran and all he's got to say. Listening to your guests inspires me to connect with the multidimensionality of my own identity and interests. And I love the banter between you and the team. As do I, Lisa, as do I. Wait, so the the, the, as do I was you? That was me, yes. (laughs) Hard to keep track. So (laughs) thank you, Lisa Christina. Yes, Lisa Christina. A person with two first names. It would appear so, Mm -hmm. yes. It's lovely. Thank you. Uh, we have Hamid, sh- just S-H, sh- <laughs> uh, on YouTube. Hamid. He wrote, yes, Hamid. Hamid sh- he wrote, Gian and team, you guys are awesome. The show is getting better and better, and I am so glad to have such a show to be able to follow and listen to every week. Your part with Keon is hilarious and a joy to listen to at the end of each interview. Tehran was an incredible guest. I always knew of him, but never really knew him. I will certainly be following his work more closely. Let us know how we can support your show. Nice That's note. really nice, yeah. Ahmed. Shh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was yeah, lovely. Nice that is a, a great letter. Uh, how, how you can support us by, you know, we haven't promoted the show yet. No. Mm-hmm. We haven't done any advertising. We haven't done, uh, but um, it would be great if, if you like what you're hearing. First of all, you can subscribe. You yeah. can subscribe to us on iTunes or on SoundCloud or on YouTube. Or on YouTube. Uh, you can follow us on our platform and let people know about it if you're liking it. But thank you so much for that, Hamid. Mm. Um, what else you got? So uh, as well, this week on episode 16, we had award-winning multidisciplinary artist Hamid Rahmani on joining us from New York. As well, we had acclaimed graphic novelist Bruce Bahmani uh, joining us from San Francisco. Bruce Bahmani, yeah. Yeah. So they both spoke very candidly about creatively adapting the Shahnameh, also known as the Persian Book of Kings, um, as well as Iranian-American duality, pursuing artistic dreams, and the challenges of finding support for art and culture in the Iranian diaspora. Diaspora. Why can't I pronounce that word? You pronounce it quite fine. Yeah, so they're two guys who are both really intent on bringing the Shahnameh to um, more people out there in in really interesting, accessible, artistic forms. I have to say that Hamid Rahmanian was one of my favorite. uh, I mean, and Bruce as well, but... uh, uh, Hamid's openness about what it's like to be a, an artist and a creator in the Persian community and the lack of support for a guy in Brooklyn who's winning these awards, who's mm-hmm. a Guggenheim fellow, mm-hmm. but can't seem to get the support from the community was, uh, you know, it's not something unique. We're hearing this over and over again, but yeah. it's such an important conversation. And I was really happy that Hamid went there in the in the interview. Yeah, I, I love the analogy he used. Iran is like a symphony and the last 40 years is just a few notes in the symphony. He was kind of highlighting the fact that, you know, we forget so much of what um, our culture, what it means to be Iranian. So I love what both of them are doing with the Shanam and kind of highlighting it and bring it, bringing it back to the consciousness. So. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. 
So a few people wrote on that episode. We have my good old friend, Amir Nickdale. No, uh, Nickdale. I'm, I'm kidding. It's yeah. Nickdale. I, I learned. Yes. Uh, he wrote saying, making the Shahnameh just like Game of Thrones. Now that would be gangster. Yeah. yeah that well, we cool. talked about the, the synergies between uh, the Shahnameh and Game of Thrones, except, you know, uh, the Game of Thrones that I'm a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shahnameh is probably better written. So, you know, imagine not if probably, they adapted that. Imagine. That would be pretty mm. interesting. Yeah. Zahok? Oh my God, that story gave me nightmares since the really? age of five. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So really? You, like, lo- you learned the Shahnameh at the well, age of no, five? My, so my parents used to read it to us as bedtime stories. And the story of Zahok... In Tennessee? Or no, I Kentucky? was in Kuwait at that, t- at that time. I was in Kuwait. Kuwait? Yeah, my dad's business was there, so we lived there for a few years. Wait, you're born in... Uh, I was joking, <laughs> but you're born in Iowa, right? Yeah. So then... Lived so, in Kuwait for a few years oh, after that. and then Do you speak was, Arabic? No, I, I refused to learn Arabic. I was Why? like, I am not an Arab, I'm Persian. We are not <laughs> Arab. Exactly. But, but I don't understand. You, so you, you're you from a Persian family yes. and you lived in Kuwait for years and you're just unilingual. You're just going with English. I've, I speak Farsi. What are you talking mm-hmm. about? A yep. little bit of French too. Mm-hmm. We can try it in Farsi if you don't believe me. But anyway, <laughs> I won't. But that's so you, but, so you. So when you were in Kuwait, yeah. they taught you the Shahnameh? Well, so me, both my brothers, we would kind of crawl up in bed and I recall almost every night my dad would just sit there and read different stories from the Shahnameh. Wow. And yeah, really that's beautiful. Awesome. And the you fact that it... All, all our... Uh, listeners to do that for to, sure for, for, for their kids. to go to and Kuwait to, to yeah. go to Kuwait <laughs> first yeah. go to Kuwait no I, I wouldn't recommend Reach that at night <laughs> to your children in, in an Arab country yeah. I mean it, it stays with you too like you guys would agree that I'm not the most Persian person on the face of the earth but stories from the Shahnama really stayed with me you know like the, it, yeah. so it's impactful that's yeah. true that's really that's yeah. great that's lovely I didn't. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> I got nothing as a no. kid from the Shah. No, Shana. no. Really? I didn't know about it. Oh. I didn't know anything about it until I was, you know, uh, later in life. I, I, I said in the interview, I didn't even read one of the stories of Shah until maybe about a decade ago when, um, really? when it was during the first season of Game See? of Thrones. I remember because I was like, "This is so Game of Thrones." <laughs> I mean, I'd heard of the Shah but I no, I really didn't. Uh, uh, no. Story I'm, of Rostam. I was. I, I knew that? the story of David. Bo- Bowie. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I knew. On. The, the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles were my shot. Well, it's it, never you know? too late. So I, yeah, I really, I highly recommend. Paul is Rostam and George is. Yeah, Don't right. even go there. <laughs> Don't even go there. No. Okay. So we have uh, Roshanak Manzarpur. She wrote, it's cool to be Persian. Listening to this podcast makes me more proud to be Iranian. Thank you. P.S. I'm so happy you came back. Nice. Oh, is that, uh, that's Roshanak. Roshanak. Thank you. That's, that's really nice. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Um, we have Abe Neymar. He wrote on YouTube saying, Another smashing interview by Gian. Very honest and hardworking men who dedicate their time and energy to Persian heritage. Mm-hmm. I admire them. Both creators of beautifully illustrated books. They are really courageous about their instinct and ideas. Otherwise, they would have knuckled under. I ordered all three available comic books by Bruce and the audiobook by Hamid. Thank you, Rook Team. That's, that's great. That's yeah, it's lovely. That's, now that's the kind of support we you want people that? to it's, give. You're, you know, you're educating people about things that they wouldn't have other, otherwise known well, about. Well, if they get the, they buy the stuff too. That's good. Yeah, that's good to for know. Sure. Uh, as well, we have Sherry Garam Mikosh. Mikosh? Garam Mikosh. I'm, I'm, when you got here. I'm doing my best here. <laughs> 
آره گرامی گرامی خوش Thank you for your words about a system that is to be awakened. Salute to you, my friend. Humanity starts with one soul at a time. Thank you for another wonderful episode. Listening to everyone's soul, uh, sorry, lightening everyone's soul in this hard time and no one better than Tehran to voice this injustice. That's lovely. Wow, mm-hmm. so that's uh, Rose Morsh. We should actually send that to Tehran mm-hmm. because that, that's sort of addressed to him. So yeah. Rose Morsh, mm-hmm. do, we have a, do we have a drum roll? Uh, I found some drum feeling here, but uh, uh-huh. if you let me, I can. Yeah, next time, I will. Okay, how about for next time? Next time. <laughs> yeah, Thank you, Shia. We go without a Our drum. speedy team. There. Maybe a cola cap can be the prize <laughs> for the letter of the week. A rook cola cap. Yeah, cola cap. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a good idea. Now right? that we know what it's called, yeah. we can now make them. <laughs> Um, uh, Rose Morsh, thank you very much. You have the letter of the week. Thank you, Keon. Thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you, Groovy Shia. Well, the first piano known to have arrived in Iran was a gift from Napoleon Bonaparte to Fatali Shah. The, the piano was a small five-octave instrument and was probably hopelessly out of tune by the time it, it arrived in Tehran in 1805 in a cargo of gifts, which also included portrait paintings, furniture, and clocks. The piano was treated as a decorative object and was largely forgotten and placed at the corner of a hall in the Golestan Palace. Around 1866, Princess Esmetad Dole decided to learn the instrument, as it was inappropriate for an aristocratic woman to be directly taught music by a man. She sent her bondwoman to learn it, and each session the bondwoman transferred to her what she had learned that day. So the first two pupils who learned to play the piano in Iran were women, as is my next guest. Take a listen to this.
Taste of Nocturne, A Night in a Persian Garden, composed by Behsod Rajbaran, performed by Leila Ramazan on her beautiful 2017 album. Leila Ramazan plays 100 Years of Iranian Piano Music, Volume 1. Leila Ramazan is a pianist based in Lausanne, Switzerland, who has appeared in recitals and concerts at various venues around the world, including Collège des Bernardines in Paris, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, Victoria Hall in Geneva, the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin, the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, and Rudaki Hall in Tehran. Layla started playing the piano in Tehran at the age of seven and continued her education by attending the École Normale de Musique de Paris, then the Haute École de Musique in Lausanne. She is a laureate of the Engelberts Foundation for Art and Culture in Switzerland and the Albert Roussel Foundation in France. The first of four volumes of her recording project, 100 Years of Iranian Piano Music, was released in 2017. The second volume, Sherazade, by Ali Reza Mashahi was released in 2019. And right now, Leila Ramazan joins me from Lausanne, Switzerland. Hello, Leila. Hello, Jean. What a pleasure to have you on this program. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for your invitation. I'm very, very excited to get take part of your uh, great uh, broadcast. Thank you. <laughs> This, you know, it, you're sitting there in Lausanne. I, from what I remember, it's a gorgeous place. It's on Lake Geneva. Um, this is a weird time uh, for people. I guess some people would think it's if you're going to be isolated somewhere, that's the best place to be isolated. How would you characterize this strange time for you in Lausanne during a global pandemic? Uh, actually, yes, it's a strange time, actually, I should tell you. Um, in uh, Switzerland, we are more free than the other country like uh, France. We were free to go uh, out of home and uh, to take breed. But um, actually, the government, it's the political uh, politics of Switzerland that give the people the responsibility to react as they want. And actually, the people are very respected to the laws and uh, nobody comes out and the streets are really empty. <laughs> it's just, it's a time of meditation, I can tell. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> how, how do you deal with isolation? Do you, uh, do you have an issue with it or do you enjoy being just a, you and your piano taking some private time together? Uh, actually, I can tell you that it's it was a little um, violent for me because I played the last concert in Berlin uh, in the 11th of March and actually I had several concerts in March and uh, May and June and I was just planning my work to practicing hard for the concert, <laughs> the project and uh, I was like uh, driving 200 kilometers <laughs> in uh, Germany and uh, I, I arrived and everything stopped and uh, you know uh, it's my nature. I'm a positive person. I try to use the life as it comes to me. <laughs> and uh, it's a good time to thinking of life and see really what we are doing, uh, what is really the place of piano <laughs> in my right. life also. Right. And um, yes, I practice my piano. I give some stream concerts and I work on the future project as I think a lot of my colleagues do, like me. And uh, the, the only thing that I can tell that it's a little worrying for me and all the other musicians and artists of the 
um, who perform is uh, we don't know when we can begin again to right. play and perform. Right. It's just the things that I'm worried about. It's, uh, it's so it's so weird or strange how quickly things change. How quickly our even our impressions of our own world change because you, you played that concert. You said in Berlin it was March 11th, so it's really only you know, uh, two, three months ago. It's not that long ago. And yet already it's almost inconceivable. To, I don't even know if I remember going to concerts anywhere. <laughs> it just seems like a whole other world because we haven't been able to do that for a while. And that is that has got to be daunting for a performer. And we've talked to a few musicians, as you know, on this show who are who worry about that. I do understand that you also teach. So, and I, I know some of the conservatories in, in Lausanne have opened up. Are you teaching again? Yes, I teach now. I teach more because I have more time. And actually, it's um, it's interesting because uh, there was a lot of people that I knew that wanted to take lessons. And I thought, oh, I'm sorry, I, I have concerts. I don't have time. But now <laughs> I have time right. and I can give lessons. And it's interesting for me. I think yes, uh, I teach, I even Pavarotti <laughs> would be giving lessons right now. You, <laughs> Everybody has to work. <laughs> you know, there's no gigs. <laughs> Uh, we need money. <laughs> uh, right. I want to ask you about your your most recent recording projects. Uh, but uh, while you're well known in many classical music uh, communities, we may be introducing you to some folks here today who are listening who may not know Leila Ramazan as well. So take me back. Growing up in Iran, you were born in Tehran. You had to be surrounded by the sounds of traditional Persian instruments, santur, tar. How is it that you were drawn to the piano? Um. I was uh, six. Uh, I listened the first time the sound of a piano in my life, uh, real sound, because my mother listened to the music, my father also, but uh, the real piano that I see a piano in my life, I was uh, six. And it was in a party and a friend of my mom, my parents played. And all the night I was near the piano, touch it and listen mm. to it. And I asked my, it was the sound of the piano who fascinated me. And uh, when you are a child, I, I don't know, I was not very um, attracted by the Persian instruments. Uh, the other instruments, I was not. And actually, around me nobody played it you know and uh, i was not in the environment to hear this kind of music i just listened to the piano and i just loved the sound and i wanted to play it Layla, you said in an interview about your childhood at the time there was no music school or conservatory i had to take private lessons in secret i was taking lessons from one of the most important figures of music in iran but he was a musicologist a composer not really a pianist from the start, he encouraged me to play the work of contemporary composers. So there's a lot to unpack in that statement alone, but uh, I'm not sure I've heard of too many classical piano players who are self-taught, yet it sounds like pretty much that's what your journey was. Uh, you were learning from someone who was not really a, a pianist. Tell me about that. Yes, yes, it, it, that's why I, I wanted to tell you also, in this time that I began to study music, the music was forbidden. Actually, that's why maybe that I didn't hear not uh, neither the, the traditional music. Nowhere we, we listened to the music, it was forbidden. And there was no concert. It was not like today that everything is more open in Iran. And uh, I had the chance, actually, that one of our friends knew uh, 
Mr. Purtorab, Mustafa Kamal Purtorab. And actually in this time, he gave the lessons, the piano lessons. And he was very interesting person and artist, very um, special character. He's very passionate in music. And uh, it was not really the person who tell me really, what should I do with piano? I was on something like, in French, we call autodidact. <laughs> I right. learned piano by myself. <laughs> but know? that's, a, you know, that's, this is fascinating because I, as somebody who comes from playing rock and pop music and all, all my life, there, you, you know, there's a, there's kind of a tradition where you can self-teach yourself uh, and it, it's even valued, you know, a, a rock musician. I mean, someone like uh, Paul McCartney for years said he couldn't read music, you know, and he just learned how to play and, and learned how to play chords and wrote songs that way. Classical music has always seemed so much more serious and stayed and you better do it by the book and you got to do it this way. Uh, so uh, it, it's actually refreshing to hear somebody um, self-teaching themselves. But uh, where do you even begin with that? You're a kid. First of all, did you have a piano? Yes, actually, it was difficult to have a piano because in this time there was nothing in Iran. Everybody, uh, yes, there was no piano and uh, just we can have the piano from the people who wanted to leave the country and sell their uh, their their goods, you know. And uh, one of the students of Mustafa Putorov wanted to leave the country and I bought, my parents bought his piano. Hmm and all the books that he had because there was no score, <laughs> you know. It was very interesting. Actually, I was thinking about it. Its life is full of magical things, you know. I think the only thing that has brought me to being a pianist, it was from the beginning I wanted just to play and be a pianist. I don't know how, but I was just fascinated with this instrument and actually Mustafa Putorov was very cultural person. He had mm. the fantastic recording of the, of the biggest pianist in the world. And every week he gave me the recording. I recorded them and the, he analyzed the piece for me. You know, the piano is it's not just playing. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of things. And actually, I had a lot of chance to have him as a professor because I was not just a pianist, just to practice, practice, practice. It was like I, I am learning an art and mm. a way of life. Music for me became a way to life, you know. And from the beginning, I was in a good way because I had something like him as a model of life, and uh, yes. Let me get to the way of life. That's interesting. But, but first of all, I, I should clarify, when you say there's, there were no pianos and it was forbidden and all that, I, I mean, obviously there was a history of piano players and pianists in, in Iran. I mean, you're chronicling it in your recordings. Um, so it, it, you, you, I guess what you mean to say is after the revolution, they had to go underground or, or the, the, the lessons had to become private. I remember my aunt uh, plays the piano and was uh, a piano teacher. And, but I guess that was a, it had to become a much more private thing uh, after the revolution, yes? Yes, it was very private. We didn't have the possibility to perform out of the home. And actually, what was very interesting that Mustafa Putorov prepared each two months a concert, private concert for his students. And it was, I think, the best moment of my life because I knew that 
in two months I should perform something. And mm. from the very uh, young age, I played. I played for the people, even very simple piece. I played and I loved to perform mm. for the people. And he organized these concerts and these concerts actually, you know, when you are a children who grown up after the revolution, during the war, after the war, it was the country really was very in a special uh, atmosphere. And we didn't have really the uh, entertainments in the television. There was not very attractive things for the children. We didn't have anything. I just have my piano and it brought me a new world. It mm. ha helped me to have a dream. I have just these dreams from my childhood. I have it now with me i i can remember all the dreams that i had to become a pianist to just to it opens the world to another world that i have never seen before that's you know? really beautiful when you say the way of life and and a, a dream i mean you it seems you took piano very seriously from a young age i mean i, yeah. underst I understand you love gymnastics for example but you gave it up to preserve your hands for playing music that's a lot of sacrifice a lot of kids would have even if they loved the piano thought of okay music is my hobby how did you know it was going to be so much more than that for you it's something that helped me to go far and to have another the things that i didn't have before i don't know it was just something that helped me that i can see that it's the thing that i i want if uh, somebody asks you why you love this girl i'm sorry i said you can't describe it you just love it you know it's the same for me i can't describe why how it was just the feeling that uh, I, I love to play, I love to hear, I love this feeling to touch the piano, to hear the sound. It was just the word to go to the lesson, to have Mr. Um, Putorop who tells everything, this beautiful uh, recording, the, 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 the concert that we gave uh, privately to play for the people. It was just the word has changed my uh, environment, you know. We're here. We're hearing some bells. Is that where you are? Yes, it's just near me. It's a church. <laughs> okay. Yes, at six o'clock. Actually, it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if that was some. You were animating your conversation with some uh, little bells in your hands or something yeah. like. That's very nice. It gives some atmosphere. To yes. <laughs> it makes sense that you have so much passion for the piano because watching you play. We see that passion. I mean, you're, you're, Leila, you're very animated. You're almost theatrical when you play. There's a lot of energy being expended. Were you always that way on the piano? Or is that, I mean, be rook about this, you know, be honest. Is that a form of stagecraft? Um, you mean that in life in general, I'm like this? Well, you could ask that, you could answer life? that too. But I mean, when you're playing and you're, you're, you're bringing so much energy and almost theater to the way you play the piano sometimes, are you doing mm -hmm. that for show or is that the, is that the way you play when you're at home? Uh, no, it's comes like this. I don't do show. But actually, uh, sometimes I feel myself to see what I am doing because sometimes uh, you do a lot 
and it's better to focus your energy on your hearing and the to really be very um, uh, very li limited in the movement and to do really something that it's necessary, not too much, you know. Actually, uh, no, it's just become uh, naturally. It's natural. I think it's, you, it's your gymnastics training coming out while you play the piano, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think. And sometimes, you know, uh, piano is very look like gymnastics because when you do, uh, especially artistic gymnastics, that you should uh, <laughs> jump and do a very movement in the air, and you should do the movement before in your head and after you go for it. Huh. And in the piano, it's exactly the same, you know. You should do the movement before and you go for it. It's, it's a, a lot of time I think of gymnastics when I play, actually. I don't want to get too far off the, 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 the path here, but, but just on that note, you know, I remember, um, I remember a classical music teacher telling me once, or maybe I just saw it at a lesson or my sister or something, but that, that when you're playing classical, the proper way to play piano is you, know, you have to keep your back straight and your hands should be flat and they should never move and only your fingers move. And uh, there were all these rules, these physical rules, all of which you seem to break while you're playing. <laughs> your your body jumps from one, one side to the other. Your hands go up in the air. Uh, are there those rules as a teacher or, or, or can, can you just do whatever you want in the service of playing the music? Actually, uh, as you told, uh, it must be in the service of the music. Sometimes some movement is too much. Even when I play, I told you, I try to record myself and see my movement and try to remove the movement which are not really necessary. And I do it because of some nervous feeling, you know, or because of some kicks that we have. I really am correcting my jazz to be effective efficiently mm. and uh, yes i want to get into the um the the traditions of the music that you play and your discovery or rediscovery of iranian traditions of uh, piano but but before we do that you've got your piano there right now right Yes, yeah. I have my piano. So I was thinking, uh, before we get into the more sophisticated um, uh, music or, or some of the pieces that you've been working on more recently, we've just been talking about your childhood. We've been talking about you growing up in Iran. We've been talking about that mentor that you had, that uh, Araya, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. <laughs> there you go, yes. Uh, 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 can you play us something? I don't know when the last time you did this was, but play us something from your early days of playing the piano. What's something that you remember that you learned when you were first learning piano in Iran? Uh -huh. Yes, yes, I know it. I know. <laughs> okay, I will play it for you. Okay. <laughs> tell, tell me about that it's uh it's mozart actually <laughs> it's one of the opera of the mozart when i bought my piano there were some uh, books with it as i told you there was no score in the <laughs> uh, we couldn't buy the score but they have some uh, score in with the piano and in one of them there was some uh, pieces from mozart 
and I think what is fascinated for me that uh, when I played this piece, I just thinking of all the things that my professor told me about this <laughs> <laughs> opera and the lot. <laughs> yes. So you yeah. end up you end up leaving Iran to do schooling in uh, in in France and in Switzerland uh, in music, and I can only assume um, working in the the Western classical tradition of music and your. Your musical traje- trajectory is fascinating to me because I can only assume it's uh, it's extremely difficult to play Rachmaninoff and Chopin or Bach. You began your career in grand style playing virtuoso pieces by these masters of Western music. Then, then you switch to Iranian composers. Uh, And I guess as an Iranian, it's natural that Iranians may be wanting you to play artistically important Persian pieces. But what was the turning point? When did you leave the, I suppose, the prestige of Western classical music behind and start to enjoy the work of composers who were looking for modernity, but breaking the codes of traditional Iranian music? When I began to uh, study music, my professor was a composer. And actually, from the young age, I played his pieces. I loved also all the times to work with the composer which are alive. And uh, I had 10 years old, I went to listen to the lessons of Masha Yehi at that I have recorded in my second CD. Oh. Just, uh, it was fascinating for me to listen to, the, to this music. And when I left Iran and uh, began to study in Paris, uh, Ecole Normale and after conservatory, and also when I get masters in Switzerland, each time for each um, diploma and each year of exam, we had to prepare a piece from a French composer or a Swiss composer. In each country that I were, I had to play a composer from that country for my exam. Hmm. And all the times I was thinking, why in Iran? Now there is the university and why the students don't play the the piece from Iranian composer, you know, I just was thinking about it. And I came back to Iran, I asked for searching for the Iranian composer and to see what has happened during these 10 years that I I wasn't in Iran and I I was in Iran, but I didn't perform in Iran, you know, Mm -hmm. I I was not uh, playing there and uh, yes. So uh, how difficult a transition is it artistically? if you become trained in the Western t- tradition, um, to then go and learn the works or play the works of Hanon or Rohani or Kehani, uh, I mean, uh, you, you, you then have to acquire the rhythm, the feeling, the sense for the Persian music. It's, um, I wonder what that's like. It's like you knew how to fly and then you had to learn how to walk or vice versa. It, it, are there really two different worlds or do they come from the same creative place for you? Actually, it's difficult for me to tell you because I'm Iranian and I do a lot of things um, uh, instinctly, uh, instinctive uh, in in French we tell it. Instinctively, yes. yes. I don't know. Um, I know that because my husband is French and a composer and uh, several times I listen a rhythm in uh, 6-8 that 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 and he listened it that 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 you know it's right, a, right. it's a feeling that we have a different kind of feeling about the rhythm and uh, i think it was much more easy for me to perform iranian uh, these pieces because 
I have this feeling of rhythm that the composers also have. Okay, so I, we didn't plan this, and I, uh, you'll, you will be forgiven if you don't want to do this, but if you will indulge me, I'm wondering if you can give us a very quick tutorial on the difference in the Western tradition of piano and the Iranian tradition. If, if, you, if you go to your piano and maybe play me something, play us something that would be one of the tenets of Western tradition and then something that would be more from the Iranian tradition. Is that possible? Actually, for example, you you do just you just you do just a motif like like this. It's a motif, okay? Okay. Somebody can hear in two times, and somebody. We have a lot the Turner music like this, but the Western. Right, 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 it's right. It's different kind is it, of is it, is it always about the rhythm, though? Because that. What about the actual, uh, the, the the melodies or the or the? Uh, do you do you naturally go to different places melodically in Iranian uh, piano? Uh, what they would call, say, modal. Actually, it's it's also about the notation. Notation. It means um, uh, how how you feel the music. For example, when I play Sherazad by Mashayekhi, it's a music very. Actually, our music, Iranian music, is based of improvisation, mm. and you can feel it. But the music I play, everything has been written. But you should have this feeling of improvisation. Mm. Do you mean that is is the Persian music less structured then overall? Actually, the composer I played they tried to do- give the structure to their music because they want to get rid of this uh, improvisation. You know, they mm-hmm. want to have uh, the writing music based on the Western rules of the music, which is very also rich. And, um, but in, in bottom of this, it's very based of uh, based on uh, improvisation. Yes, of course. So, can you play us one of the pieces, or sorry, a, a, little, a little piece of one of the pieces that um, that say you recorded on the the 100 Years of Iranian Piano Music that would speak to that kind of improvisational kind of style? Yes, of course. I I I can play one of um, one of these pieces that has been completely written. But um, it's very in the it's a piece of Ahmad Pejman, uh, Per Sava. Oh. <laughs> uh, you're picking this because you know this is my favorite. Yes, <laughs> actually, you know, it's it's also very precious to me because when I wanted to perform this 100 uh, this project and uh, the, one of my friends, uh, Farshad Jamali, a very good singer told me, Leila, you know, Ahmad Pejman is writing for piano. And I told him, that I don't know Ahmad Pejman, I know him, but I have never talked to him. He told me, yes, I give your his number. And I called him, he told me, yes, I'm writing, but oh, wow. I'm very afraid because it's the first time that I'm writing for piano. And I don't know at all if it's good for piano or not. And it was very nice for me because we have built up this piece, this piece together. He sent it to me and told me, is this okay? Yes, everything is okay. And I encouraged him to write it. And actually I premiered it in Iran when he was there also. And yes, it's very precious to me, this piece. And I just play a small part Please, of it. I'm thrilled that you're playing this. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
beautiful. That's so beautiful. <laughs> what was it like to play that in front of him in Iran? Oh, it was just, uh, he, I have a video. I think you saw this video. He is inside. Yeah, it's on. He oh, came after. that's right. Yeah, it's I, on YouTube. It, yeah, it's it, true. Uh, that performance yes. in Iran in 2014, I think, or something. Yes, yes, it was amazing because I played 21 composers in two nights and every composer were there. They were alive. Just uh, Malik Aslanian was passed away the year before. Never they have been together in the same time in Rudaiki Hall, all of these. And it was funny because some of them hate the other one. <laughs> but they really, even with even amongst the piano players, this competition. <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny because, for example, I invited them. Ah, oh, no, I don't want to see na 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 na. Ah, yes, you will come just for me. <laughs> ببین دیگه ایرانیا هر جایی که بریم apparently we have this problem even to go to a concert um, yes it's uh, actually it's also here like this but it's more hidden you know it's not very obvious but no it was very clear but it was funny so uh, yes it was great thing because after that also there was a lot of pianists who began to play the Iranian music of these composers and Yes, a lot of festivals who have begin to build up the contemporary Iranian music with the young composers. I'm very happy about it, really. You know, Leila, it occurs to me, I mean, you lived in France for six years. You've been living in Lausanne for 12 years now. But you do regularly go back to Iran. You, you've performed there. You're so interested in exploring Iranian music. You're interested in representing and exporting it. Your family lives in Iran. Why do you choose to to just not return there permanently? Oh, to live there. Um, actually, uh, it's it's a good question because you ask yourself now, um, where is your home really? <laughs> but now I can tell that half of my life I live I lived in Iran and half of my life I lived in Europe. Yes. It's my, maybe it's me who is now uh, half uh, here, half there, and my life now is here. And uh, I don't know if I can live again in Iran. You know, it's difficult also to really do the professional thing in Iran. You should know. It's, um, it's difficult to build up, uh, build up the things because everything changes permanently. When you have a concert in Iran, you know, it's very exhausting. Every time when I play in Iran, it's very difficult because we get Mojaves, uh, this uh, perm permission, very late. And I should prepare the concert and I'm not sure that finally they will give the Mojaves or not. Right. You know, you just, it's very exhausting, very exhausting. But it's my life. It's me also there. I can't tell that I'm not. <laughs> I belong also to Iran, and I want to bring this music to Iranian people for the young composer to know that this music also is our music, and they can have a reference uh, for their composition. That this 
composers also had uh, written these pieces for the piano. This is what I was going to ask you about. I mean, to actually tell me why you started the 100 Years of Iranian Piano Music Project and uh, Sheher Azad. Um, Because you've said that you want to seek to create links between Persian heritage uh, and and European contemporary music. It sounds like you found the right partners for it in Ali Reza Mashayikhi and, and uh, Kayvon Shemirani, uh, mm-hmm. among many others you've worked with. Re- can you reflect on why you believe um, and what you believe the importance of this music is? Why the world needs to hear this music? When I play Sherazad, Sometimes, uh, in the meanwhile, that I think I'm walking <laughs> in the Persepolis in Shiraz. I'm walking also in the pollution streets of uh, Tehran. You know, it's a combination of modernity, of Iran of today, and Iran of uh, one, three, two thousand years before. It's maybe me. It's uh, us. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's Iran. You know. And um, that's why I want to perform this uh, music because it's everything inside. You have our music is based on uh, literature and you can feel their literature in this music. And it's based on our traditional music, which is fantastic, but you can see the um, Western code of music. The accord was very, uh, complicated. You can hear the serial music, you can hear the jazz music, you can hear uh, the classical music, contemporary, you can hear everything inside, mm. you know? Leila, in a in hundred years of Iranian piano music, um, this project, these four records, you present the works of, of many Iranian composers, including a woman named Fozia Majd. Uh, t- mm. Tell me about her. Why was she important to you? She's very important to me because, you know, she is now 82 years old and she was one of the composers who didn't leave Iran after the revolution. She was the, the artistic director of the festival of 2,500 years of uh, when they, they did this festival in Persepolis, mm. you know, before revolution. Uh, she was the artistic director of, uh, and uh, she invited a lot of big pianists, great pianists like Rubenstein, Brendel, who came and performed in Persepolis in Iran. And after revolution, she stayed. She gave the piano lessons, and uh, she continued to to write just for herself. Nobody could play her pieces because we couldn't play the pieces of a woman composer. Wow. And uh, actually, I I, le- I knew it recently. When I see her and talk to her, I saw how powerful she is. She stayed on her language. She has done what uh, uh, Bartok had done for Hungary. She has uh, reco- uh, recollected all the uh, folkloric music of Iran and based a very contemporary music Based of based on this folk music of Iran, you know, it's a lot of uh, elements of folk music in her music, but you can't hear it like this. You should analyze the piece to hear it. And for me, it's very precious that this lady has uh, studied in France. She knows to write 
in Western uh, rules of music, and she put her heritage of music inside and bring to life a very complicated and beautiful piece I recorded in my first CD, you know. And I think for our new generation of composer, it's important to know, okay, of course we have a big composer in the world that everybody knows, but we have also our composers that use it and do it, did it, and it's interesting to know what they have done, and we have something. You know, piano is not very old in our country. We have just 100 years that the, the people play and the composer try to write for it. But I think for 100 years, it has gone very um, far. Your story about Fozia Majd is um, a beautiful and what she means to you. I think maybe we can play a piece of her music uh, at the end of this interview. Yeah. Would you pick a piece from Fozia Majd that we can play after at the end of the interview? There is t- three dialogue. There is three dialogue. Maybe the third one is better because it goes faster. It's such a that's such a great story about her. Uh, listen, uh, Leila, before I let you go, how how do you define success for you now? You've accomplished a lot. Uh, you've got these in, uh, recordings that you're making. You're cataloging Iranian piano music for the world. Um, you're playing these big concerts. Uh, you're in this beautiful place in in Switzerland. Uh, what is success to you now? Do you care about being a best-selling pianist at the box office? Do you want to be the number one pianist in in the world? Um, classical music, as we learn over and over again, is not the path to pick if you want to be guaranteed a future of big money. So what what is this all about for you now? Actually, I think what is, uh, I, I can tell success, I think it's um, uh, some kind of a piece, interior piece. <laughs> and that I feel now. I have really uh, an interior piece, maybe because from the beginning I follow what uh, I hear in my heart, in my heart. You know, it was not easy to continue the music as my parents didn't want. It was They were not happy with it. But I continued. It was not easy. And then and now I am looking before what has happened. I think if I had a child and he wanted or she wanted to continue the music, I didn't, I, I didn't, I don't tell him or her that it's uh, difficult to ec- for economic that you become a pianist hmm. because nobody knows what happened, you know. Right. I just tell, okay, if you want, you should do it. I think it's the success can be just this that you do. And in all the situations, when I choose something, it was the thing that my heart told me that I, sh- I should do it. And it's natural for me. This this uh, this project of Iranian music. It's just my life, you know. It's it's me. It's my life, and uh, I propose. I think this can be maybe success for me. Well, of all the things you've accomplished, inner peace sounds like a pretty good one too. That's uh, I congratulate you on that. Listen, it is it has been uh, such a pleasure to get to talk to you. To 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 I hope I didn't poke too much at trying to figure out uh, the ins and outs of Persian versus Western. And um, but you were so great to help us with that and to to tell us your story and uh, tell us about your recordings. And um, I I say this I find I'm saying this more and more at the end of interviews interviews. But I can't wait for COVID to be over with. So hopefully we can see you in concert again before too long. Uh, thank you, Gian. I'm so, so happy to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for your invitation. 
And I hope to see you also very soon. Yes. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Thank you very much. Khudafis. Have a nice evening. Khudafis. Bye-bye. That's the great pianist Leila Ramazan, the latest volume of her recording project, 100 Years of Iranian Piano Music, is called Shirazad by Ali Reza Mashayakhi. It was released in 2019. Leila Ramazan joined us from Lausanne, Switzerland today. go out on this Fosia Majd uh, piece we were just talking about Fosia Majd this is from Leila's actually 2017 record volume one of the 100 years of Iranian piano music a piece called Dialogue 88 number two Fosia Majd thank you so much for listening to Rock today thanks to the team who put this together thanks to all of you who are supporting and spreading the word and subscribing much appreciated Talk to you next week. Mizun Boshin.